Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast where each week I discuss practical, simple, and scientifically backed ways to help you take back control of your mental health, help others, and ultimately live your happiest life. In this episode, I am interviewing Nathan Padilla. I sit down with him to talk all things addiction and addiction recovery. Nathan has a master's in social work and is a licensed counselor. He also has what he likes to call a PhD in crackaloy because he uses his own real and painful experience with the drug addiction and recovery to effectively connect with and help others who are struggling. In today's episode, Nathan shares his own powerful and personal story, how he helps others overcome addiction, how you can help someone else overcome an addiction, and so much more. Get ready for an inspiring, powerful, and helpful episode. Just before we start, I want to thank everyone again who has left a review, subscribed to this podcast, and shared it on social media with friends and family. Not only does your feedback help me improve each episode, but I love seeing what you're learning, and it's so encouraging and exciting. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review. This information in this podcast is free. All I ask is that you share and subscribe. One more note before we begin. This interview was recorded remotely, so the audio quality may be a little scratchy in some areas. Now, back to today's episode. Nathan, I'm so thrilled to have you in the studio today. You have an amazing story. I met you at my conference last year and you came and told me your story and it's just wonderful to hear it. So I'm very excited for you to share it with my audience because I know they're going to learn so much from you. So thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I really enjoy your conference and also your work. It's been helpful for me personally, as well as in my work with clients. Oh, I'm so I really appreciate it. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Nathan, on that note, can you share a bit about your journey and, you know, what got you to where you are today? You know, why do you do what you do? What keeps you motivated? Sure. I usually, when I do a talk, sort of start with the academics, then go back to the beginnings in a sense. I I think it sometimes makes a funny place of a hardship that, that we had, I had to go through. But I'm a therapist, licensed clinical social worker. And I have a office here in Roswell, New Mexico, where the alien supposedly landed here from <laughs> outer space. <laughs> That's funny. So we have lots that goes on here. When I was young, uh, I was raised by a, a good mother and father, and they I give them credit for wanting to give us a better life than they had themselves. So they, they had hardships. Now, of course, as a child, I didn't like that because it was strict and you're going to go to school and things were were good. Now, I didn't have any problems at home, but it was was some of those usual problems as children of wanting to fit in. And so my original struggle in life was just trying to be part of the team, the the cool kids growing up. And and that's probably what led me into this struggle with addictions that, that eventually overtook my life for close to 20 years. And again, it didn't start out a trauma like some of them do. My, it was more of, more of just trying to fit in with some friends. But the first time I drank with friends was in third grade, not because of trouble in my life, but just troubles in social interactions, just wanting to fit in with the, the cool kids. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, the first time I smoked marijuana was in sixth grade. Again, it wasn't a trauma in my life. It was a friend of mine whose mother passed away, and it was during the after the funeral and the meal and all that, that that was something the older generation was doing, and, and they just passed it on in. And again, it was just to fit in. And it wasn't an everyday deal. It was just a, one of those experimenting deals. And it wasn't, again, that I was trying to escape my life. It was just something that the people were doing. But if we go forward a few years as in all families, there's always challenges, and, and, and our family wasn't perfect, but it was it was healthy in, in its own way. But when I was 15, we were just having some troubles as a 15-year-old son with mom and dad, just normal challenges. And out of the blue, my father passed away of a massive heart attack. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we, we hadn't been exactly getting along in the day 
so because just like I said, some family struggles, but it wasn't the best of the relationship, but he was my father and I really looked up to him. And one day he just didn't come home and there was no warning. There was no sign. And so that just threw the whole family upside down. I can't imagine. And so, yes, ma'am, it was just, you know, an emptiness, a darkness. Mm. And so now I experienced this trauma and it was the days of the funerals and, and the just so, so numb to life that some friends and, and cousins came up to me and said, hey, why don't you come over here and relax with us? We got some good stuff. So I, I just went with them. Like I said, I had already mingled with them. And this time it was different. It wasn't marijuana we were smoking. It was crack cocaine. Mm. And I had took my first hit. It was just blew, blew me out of the sky there as a high. And I remember coming up off that hit and just saying, can I have another? And instantly found a way to escape reality. The loss of father didn't matter. If it was wrong or right, didn't matter. It's just, I felt, I didn't feel the pain inside. And so I look back now that, you know, when I tried the other substances, it was just a, a dibble dabble or experiment. But when it, this one came in front of me, because I was vulnerable because of the loss, it definitely changed into addiction pretty quick. I just want to hone in on what you said. It's a very powerful statement that you, you just wanted to, you, you were vulnerable because of the pain of the loss of your dad. You were very vulnerable and that pain was overwhelming and, and the cocaine was a way of numbing that pain. Prior to that, it was just dabbling to, you know, fit in with the crowd kind of thing. So there was a very significant shift in the in when you experimented with the cocaine. Yes, ma'am, it, it was. And and then, and then just the the whole interaction with the people that just sort of made it a magical tool in my life, because not only could I escape my reality, I could also have make money with it. I could have friends and power over others, different things. It all goes within that lifestyle. So here is a, a young man, 15, lost, confused, just lost, and, and also found this new powerful tool, it seemed like at the time. And so I just started mm. running with that that lifestyle. And and of course our family was broken. You know, my sister was a senior in high school and and she she eventually went off into college and my mom, who also was devastated, you know, went went in her direction. And I just fell into this lifestyle of substance use. And it just really took over my life from that moment forward from from doing anything that we needed to do to make the money to have these substances. So I started selling marijuana and selling cocaine and, and falling into that lifestyle. So, so not only was I not dealing with reality, I started to do bad delinquent behaviors, which started causing problems within the family itself as well. If we go forward, I, I was still able to perform in school. I, it was blessed with some intelligence, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so the schoolwork wasn't hard. It was just the life that was hard out mm. there. And you were living a dual life at that point, weren't you? Yes, ma'am. Like I said, the family was, was broken up. And about the time I was a senior, my mom had gotten into a new relationship, and she, which was sometimes out of town. And my sister was off to college, so I was there at home by myself and had some freedom it wasn't like I was asking them for help. I was telling them, go ahead and go, because I mm. thought I knew what I was doing. And the door was just wide open. And, and so I worked a job, but, but then I also worked this, this second life, like you were saying. And it just started to, it looked like a, a good thing for many years, because again, it, it brought money, it brought friends, it brought pleasure. And it just started going really fast. I went off to college and eventually drop out of my second year of college due to my addiction and problems, had to have a, a surgery and started getting into bad things with bad people. I came home, had a back surgery and eventually moved to Albuquerque following a girlfriend. And uh, Albuquerque is the biggest city in New Mexico. And moving from Roswell, which is a small city, it was probably about 40,000 to a much larger city, brought its own challenges. 
And I went in saying I was going to go to school again, but it, it was it was the drugs that took over from there into gangs, into violence and life just took off. And f- so from being a student to being just a drug user and a drug dealer for many, many years, lost many jobs, lots of violence, because like I said, I was into the gang scene and and all the other bad behaviors and eventually was homeless It ruined the relationship that I followed the lady to Albuquerque after 11 years, no children. It wasn't like we were trying, but there was no children, but ruined that relationship totally. And was again, there lost. And the only friend I had was cocaine. And I just kept doing what I was doing. And then I I met someone who was just as confused. I think just like I said, as kids, we tend to gravitate towards people with similarities. And so that's who I hung out with. And that's who I knew. And and I met this new person and she was doing the same behaviors as me. So we sort of made it worse for each other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we thought it was okay. You know, when you hang out with, as the old saying, birds of a feather flock Mm. together. We, we we just said, okay, well, let's do this. Yeah, so you were kind of like a bad influence on each other. <laughs> yes, and and we just – our addiction was a, a 24-7 deal. Mm, every day, goodness. every moment, we were up, you know, sometimes 12, 15 days straight with, wow. with really not eating. And, and there's a lot of things that, you know, I'm sort of editing sort of some of the stories because – the lifestyle out there when you're homeless at times for for about two years i was in a sense homeless where i didn't have a place of my own and we just would go from somebody's apartment to a hotel room to sometimes in the park you know so several months and years living this style many things cross your path Mm. you know so been homeless, eat eat out of a trash can, rob people, other addicts, you know, healthy people. So it's it's definitely not a fun lifestyle. That's a mess. How did you feel in the midst of all of that? How were you feeling? Were you aware of, you know, what this was doing to you? So during this whole process, I did notice a change. As I mentioned, when I talk now, I usually start off with my education and I tell them that I do have an associate's of arts, where I focus on philosophies, ethics, and religions. I'm an associate in chemistry, so we do talk about things mixing and matching in our body in a way. I got a biology pre-med degree, a bachelor's in psychology, and my master's in social work, but I say my PhD is in crackology and a minor of insanity. Oh, I love that. Because during this process, you know, there was those initial feelings of feeling unworthy or not as good or wanting to belong to as a child and then feeling the trauma and the loss. But when you're high on on drugs for these many days, I definitely have experienced pretty much every diagnosis out of the DSM-5 and DSM-4 and and going down. So. There's been moments of extreme anxiety and paranoia where you just swear everybody knows everything, but at the same moment, nobody knows anything. Dark depression, as I mentioned, from the emptiness of the loss of a father and and the emptiness of being totally lost, not knowing where you're going. Some deep, deep depression in dark places, as well as schizophrenia, hearing things, seeing things. It's, it's a lot of work to be high that sometimes the addicts don't really look at. It just becomes normal because that's what happens all day long. Then you add in the factor that you're you're not sleeping for 12, 15 days. That never makes My things goodness. better. Amazing how much one's body can actually take. Because do you did you do you eat in those did you eat in those time, you know, those 10, 12 days? You know, sometimes you did eat. You go through these phases. It was strange. I would always carry a toothbrush. So apparently Oral hygiene was important to me, but some days you ate and some days you didn't. And again, being homeless, there was times where I ate out of out of a trash can. Mm. And so nothing goes well. Your whole digestive system is a mess from the food that goes in and the things that come out that it's just it causes a, a toll on you. You're dehydrated because you're not drinking. You know, your temperature's mm. out, out the roof. 
And so it's just a mess. And imagine close to 20 years of fighting this battle. Unreal. Drinking alcohol to smoking pot and everything else. I've done heroin for for a while, methamphetamines, the acid, the mushrooms, all the the psychedelics. And so it's one of those deals where if you're taking a hallucinogen, you're preparing to hallucinate. Mm -hmm. But when the hallucinations don't go away, then it gets scary. And so those were the times. And it eventually got to a point where, where nothing was working because at one time it seemed like an escape, but I was no longer able to escape. And so when it was the worst time in my life in 1999, I was homeless. I was with this new person. We were both just, as they say, hustling on the streets, trying to stay alive, trying to to keep our high going. And we were walking between just motel rooms. And she looks at me and she tells me I'm pregnant. And all I could say was, okay. And it was strange because I was definitely not consistent and responsible at that time. Mm -hmm. But I didn't hesitate to just say, okay. And for some reason, like I said, I was raised well. I just chose to do a lot of wrong. Mm -hmm. And, And I had thrown out every moral and value I was ever taught. I could justify anything to to keep my high going, especially mm-hmm. on those 15 day sprees. But for some reason, when she said that, there was a there was a peace. <laughs> yes. And now we didn't do any good. We just kept doing what we were doing, unfortunately. And we did use both her and I during mm-hmm. her pregnancy, my son. So on January 24th of 1999, the Lord saw fit that this was his way of changing my equation up by giving me a son. So I was really worried and concerned. I, I knew better because I had had some college and stuff and I knew we weren't doing the best things. But I, at this moment, I should have been dying probably from AIDS and mm. ha- had hepatitis and everything else. But for some reason, I didn't didn't have it. I had I had been fully crazy at one time, but. There was a peace in me, and my son was born. 29 days after he was born, the police did come to our house and took mom away because of some felony warrants, and she was no longer in our life after that moment. Mm -hmm. So there I was, still lost and confused, still using cocaine on a daily basis. We're talking close to an ounce or more of of crack cocaine a day, which I'm not sure if you're familiar, but that's a big, big amount. And I had my son and and I didn't know what to do to put a, put this pipe down or put this child down. And I I just kept going forward with life, not knowing what to let go. And eventually in 2001, um, I am a slow learner at certain things. I was arrested for my fourth time for DWI. And and this sounds strange maybe to some where I, I had gotten DWIs, but alcohol didn't necessarily wasn't my drug of choice. Mm. It wasn't my poison. I could drink it and put it down and leave it alone. Cocaine was definitely my addiction. Now, I had a same, similar run with meth and heroin. So I got this other arrest and and the and I had already been to treatment two other times because of the court systems. And so a lot of times treatment just seemed like a part of punishment. And and I didn't look at it as a help. I just looked at it as something I had to go in, tell them what they wanted to hear and move along my business. The first two times I went to treatment, I still never stopped using I'd use in the programs and, and just worked around it. This year has definitely been one of the most stressful for all of us, so it's vital to find ways to relax and unwind and make this a part of daily routine. Your mind and brain need it. One of my favorite new ways to de-stress and decompress is with Solitaire Grand Harvest. It's everything you love about playing Tri-Peak Solitaire all wrapped up in a fun farm aesthetic so you can enjoy the relaxing sights and sounds of farm life while you level up your Solitaire skills. Solitaire Grand Harvest is a super relaxing treat for the mind, full of fun and challenging levels you can play anywhere, anytime. It's solitaire like you've never seen, and it's free to play. I love competing against my kids, and it's a fun way for me to connect with my friends, even though we can't see each other in person right now. Whether you're stuck inside or just dreaming of the great outdoors, now you can have a fun farm-style getaway right at your fingertips. 
Download Solitaire Grand Harvest for free today in the Apple App Store, Google Play and Amazon. And all this time you were still looking after your son on your own? Did your, did your mom help you or were you on your own help looking after him? So uh, eventually my mom and sister did move to Albuquerque as well. Then my sister and her husband moved on to another location. My mom was there and she remarried a really good man. And so they were there, but they weren't happy with me. My mom has this saying that, that I use now. She said, I always love you, but I don't like you very often. And so she was there to help with my son. So she became a motherly figure. Me and my son had a place at times and sometimes we'd stay with them. So she, that was a support system for us. But he was always with me and always my responsibility, you know, the doctors mm -hmm. and all that. And I think that was a very important part. Mm. And so so he was a little over two and a half when I got this arrest and I was ordered to go first to, to, to jail. And I told myself, I need a I need a change because deep down inside, even even though I'd done wrong for many years, I knew it wasn't right to do this. And so I said, I'm going to I'm going to try to change my my mindset into let's look at this as help. Let's, even the jail time is help. And I heard this saying I was born and raised a Catholic. And so God's always been in my life, but mm -hmm. I was really mad when, when my father died. So I rebelled against God and went to, and as I say, to the mm -hmm. dark side to practice the other things, mm -hmm. all the wrongful things. But at this time, when I tried to go back, I had so much guilt and shame. And I was listening to the podcast you sent out this morning on addictions, mm. that the shame and guilt is very heavy and it keeps so many mm. people out. And I know that was something that my son's mom struggled with because of, of the things that she did to stay out in the world. That shame and guilt just eats us up. And all the wrong that I did was there. And it was just hard to clean mm. up. But, but what I, I eventually saw was that God used jail to separate me from the world to make me different and then to bring me back into the world to make a difference. Oh, that's amazing. So you changed. So it was when you were in jail that you actually changed. Yes, I was there and I said, OK, you've been here several times. You know, it was it had been there so many different times. I, I have a, a lengthy history, been to county jails, been to prison for a bit that they didn't even fingerprint me anymore. They just said, do you have any new tattoos, Mr. Padilla, so we can update your file? And so I, I didn't want to be the frequent flyer. I didn't mm. want a coffee cup in the jail. Exactly. Mm. And so I made a commitment. One of the first commitments I did when in this last, well, it wasn't actually my last incarceration, but it was to not play the jailhouse games like I always had before and to try to improve myself. So I grabbed a, a AA big book and a 12 by 12, which is the traditions and the steps. And I, I sat on my bunk and read read those books rather than jump off and go play games with the with the rest of the boys in the corner. Mm. And so that was one of the beginnings of working on myself. When I got out, I also started a program of, of reading the Bible as I was taught and then went to therapy with a mindset of you're going to listen and you're going to try some stuff. You're not going to. I want to. Ho I want to hone in on what you just said there. You, you, at this point, you had made a decision and you went into therapy with the mindset that you're not just going to tolerate the system, but you're actually going to learn from this and change. So there was a shift in jail. You, the, the last, the second last time, you decided to read and to study and to get knowledge. So you chose to make a decision to get out of the addiction and to get the knowledge you needed to get out of addiction. Is that correct? Have I summarized what you're saying correctly? Yes, you, you are. And, and, and that's, I know when I was at your conference and you were talking to us about how the brain works or the mind works that you must think, feel, and choose mm. and, and how that sets things in alignment. And what I had done for many years was I would feel, think, and choose, which sets you in a whole different direction. Because when you feel first, then you're only trying to self-satisfy and, and self-seeking. And, mm. and sometimes that's revenge or, or the shame and the guilt is driving those that thinking and choosing. And so this time, and that's why I really have appreciated your work, because it oh, was things you. 
things that I was doing, but you have helped me make sense of what I was doing back oh. when I was doing it. Well, so, I'm so glad. That's wonderful. That's what I'm trying to do. So that that's I'm glad it helped you. Yes. And so I, I went on a, a journey to just improve myself. I'm one of those all or none people that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it 100% or I'm not going to do it at all. So I, I really jumped into my recovery and, and joined Alcoholics Anonymous and Cocaine's Anonymous. And then I was in an outpatient treatment program. And then it was time to move. We were another door had opened for me to go back to college and several years later, and, and, and I was tired of working dead-end jobs and being lost and confused. And so I made a commitment to go back to school and be a full-time father. And so me and my son moved back to Roswell. My mom moved back to Roswell, and I went back to school out here. We started, got the associates at our local community college, and then me and my son had to move to Portales, which is a smaller city where there's a four-year college, Eastern New Mexico University, and that's where I did my my double bachelor's there. And and that was a time with just me and my son. He was going into kindergarten, and we were far enough from grandma to where I had to do everything, but close enough if we really needed help, they could come help us. And so it really pushed me into stepping up, and I think just diving into being a full-time dad as well as a student as well as what I learned is I needed to stay busy because when when a person that's fully addicted as I said earlier cocaine was a 24/7 job it was every minute of every day it didn't take holidays it didn't take weekends off it was always going and it, when you take the drugs out there's just this big empty void and if you're if you don't get up and start living your life you easily fall back into those old behaviors. So for me, that was how I filled it in. I was deep into studies. You know, some one of my my final semesters for bachelor's degree in, in, in pre med was twenty five credits that semester, which mm. was I had to get double overload. That's uh, a lot. Six, and, and I was able to graduate with honors. Like I said, I was I truly believe that I have something to do because I wasn't totally brain dead like I sh- probably should have been. No, it's a, it's was- a miracle. Yeah, the way that you – your story is incredible because the, just the fact that you went back to college and got all those degrees and graduated with with such with, – with honors. you And, yes, with all that, those years of those drugs, your brain would have been damaged. But you're a classic example of someone who's explains how the mind is not the brain, how the mind moves through the brain – and how with your mind you can change your brain. And then you did that and you chose to do that. So, I mean, it's fantastic. So, I, I just have to, you know, I take my hat off to you. I congratulate you for what you've done and such an encouragement. Well, I appreciate that. It, it definitely wasn't easy. It was a lot of nights of pulling out your own hair and mm. question, questioning yourself. It, 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 and it wasn't just a clean break from anything. You know, I, I struggled with thoughts of relapse for, for many years, for six years. As I tell my clients now, sometimes if you're if you haven't used for a day or a week, it's not you're really not in recovery. You're just probably in trouble or broke. You don't have the money to get more. Yeah. And so I I figured out for me that when I first thought treatment was punishment through probation, I actually saw that I did better under observation. And and some of that paranoia that I had when I was using, I at the end there I would drive to one city to buy drugs, drive to another little place to use them. And and I still felt like everybody knew what I was doing. And, and I look back now that it, one person did know, one entity did know, and that was the Lord. And, and he just let me know that he was watching and that wasn't okay. And so I just learned to live my life and start talking about it to, to people and get out of that shame. One thing I've learned that if I tell someone about my past it's a tool in my hand but if they dig it up then it's a weapon against me that's really good when you if you tell someone it's a tool in your hand but if they dig it up it becomes a weapon against you but now you've nathan you've taken all this experience and then all the way your your recovery long painful difficult with relapses but you did it as a father back into education. You took all of that and you've turned that around and you now have an organization that helps people recover from addiction. And you work mainly with teens and adults. Can you tell us about your, your organization and what you do? Sure. So I 
finished the college and, and I got my therapy, my drug and alcohol counseling license in, in 2006. And I went to work for a small agency and was just working night and day and was judged by people. And that's how things usually happen. You know, they, I was the only ex-criminal, ex-addict and working the most hours and, and literally just got judged by that and, and let go. I wanted to interrupt you there. Isn't that the most ironic thing that you were the, actually the most qualified to help people because you had been through the experience and knew how to get out of it, yet you were so judged? Yes. As we say it here, the good old boy system wasn't so good. They mm. were they were pretty rigid at, at times. And, and, you know, that's humans. We that They do those things. But I was, I was judged. It was in January. It's funny. I was asked to start a youth program. And when I went to work for them, for someone who hadn't fully been trained, they had to go on a medical leave. So I asked, okay, can I can I help you guys out? They said, yes. They gave us the, the green light, the go ahead. So I put it all into place. I had a mentor of mine, Dr. Robert Phillips, come in and do some training, which he had done that before with this organization. And then I just started beating the bushes and, and, and talking to juvenile probation and to the schools. And when the, the leader left, she had only had 14 people. When she came back in two months, I had 75. But she didn't like all the paperwork. And on January 5th of 2007, she told the boss that, that I she thought I was using cocaine on Thanksgiving holiday. Yet, I was working, you know, on Black mm. Friday and Saturday, and I was all, you You obviously don't know a, a crackhead, and if I was using, I wouldn't be at work. Mm, exactly. I offered to do a hair test and everything. They said no, and they just let me go. My mentor, Bob Phillips, he, he had told us earlier that the, the field would change to one day to be outcome-driven rather than just clock in, do your job, and clock out. And and he says, well, since you don't play well with others, why don't you start your own business? Mm. And and so somebody closing the door was actually the, the opportunity to start my own business. And so that's how I started my first business was to just provide a service that would welcome people and honor their lives and not judge them by the scars and the stripes that they may walk in the door. And and so that's what I started first. I started my private practice as a LADAC, which was hard because you can't bill some of the insurances at that. But I started connecting with DVR, Department of Vocational Rehabilitation, who saw addictions as a disability and got some contracting, contracting through them. Another mentor in our community, Miss Jane Batson, worked at the university. She took me under her wing. And by the second year, I started a nonprofit organization to search for money to do the work we wanted to do rather than jump through the hoops of everybody else to do the work they wanted to mm. do. And so we had this little deal going, started working with CYFD families, and then another sort of tragedy hit of, of accusations because of my past. And, uh, and it was just another pruning mm. time. And it separated some people, but the true people that were there to support me were there, Dr. Phillips and, and Miss Batson and, and my family. And we just stayed with our nose to the grindstone and, and built something. I also joined a, a small agency, La Familia Mental Health, who had the power to bill insurances and just didn't have the clients or the professional. And so it was a good match where I would join them because I had plenty of clients, but I didn't have billing and they had billing, but no clients. So we just made this collaboration and we just been building it ever since. And now here in Roswell, we have probably the largest outpatient treatment where people can come and each week they can have a recovery group. And it's it's at least a minimum of six months for our outpatient program. Some of the people that really do the best stay on and, and keep going and grow their program. And so they, they have a recovery group 
which works on the individual, but then we have a family parenting group for recovery, which goes to help them rebuild their homes and their relationships. That's amazing. That's incredible what you've turned, how you've turned this around and how you're helping people now. We'll put all the links to your organization and details in our show notes so people can contact you. But you talk about dual diagnosis as a fact in addiction. What is this? And can you just talk about that for a moment? So dual diagnosis has a couple of different things. I've worked with some groups out of UNM, and when they came to us, dual diagnoses were mental health and learning disabilities. And then you have dual diagnoses that are mental health and addiction issues. I've also had clients that have all three. So they're, they're, they're a trifecta. They got They had either a learning disability, they had mental health challenges, and then they had addictions. So many times, I know a lot of the field does look at addictions as a result of trauma or difficulties. And we we do look at that. I know when we do some step work, because I I do like the 12-step programs, and it says, tell us a story, tell us your story about your childhood and how your life I've become unmanageable as a teenager. And so we try to look at that. And as as I heard you say at the conference, honor the walk that somebody has in their mm-hmm. life through the relationships and their experiences. So a lot of right now, we just recently started a teen program and a lot of the teens come in and the big word is I have anxiety. And I just loved your conference where everybody that, that was engaged is trying to to challenge the, the ways of the world about what is really a disease and what is helpful. And because I felt like I was just fighting the battles here alone in, in my corner. But again, that's just how sometimes our thinking gets that we're the only ones doing things until I met this, all of you there. It was good to know. But so good. But the depression, you know, that, that people use substances, a lot of times addiction starts as a positive reinforcer meaning that it's adding to your life. You know, you're young and and you don't drink, but you go to a party and and alcohol lowers your inhibition. So then everybody's talking and everybody's having fun and and you, you chalk it off as alcohol made that a great night. Mm -hmm. And then you, you go back the next time and you say, well, one or two drinks did great. Let me drink, you know, Mm -hmm. five or six. And then you overshoot the window and you wake up with a pounding headache. And now you drink a beer, not because it adds to your life, but because it takes the pounding headache away. Mm, So it's shifted from adding to subtracting. Yes. So now it's a negative reinforcer. And that's where uh, a lot of times for heroin addictions, it's not only that they're trying to get high, but they definitely don't want to be sick from withdrawal. Again, with the cocaine and stimulant addictions, when I don't use, I don't have the energy and I feel the guilt and the shame. I have clients that have hallucinations and they they say smoking marijuana sometimes helps them if it's the right strand. Or they come in my office and they have an earplug in their ear because the earplugs keep the voices toned down, even though the voices are in their head. Mm. So we see all kinds of different dynamics. but. It's it's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? That's what I wanted to ask you. How do you actually help someone recover from addiction? And I know that's a massive question, but you and you've you have kind of alluded to it throughout your story and given but if you could maybe give us a summary of how you can help how how do you help someone recover from addiction? Okay. So one, when somebody comes to my office, I usually give them an introduction to know that I'm a person in recovery if they haven't heard it before. And Try to get them to understand that this is a safe place. Even when they come in as probation or parole referrals, I tell them that we definitely want to be known as the helping side. And we're here to hear you. We're not here to look down our nose or judge you. We're, we're going to walk alongside mm-hmm. you. To really hear the story, because if you don't make that connection, they're going to probably just tell you what they think you need to know. And so if you can't find out which came first, the chicken or the egg, were, were you anxious and depressed first or were you traumatized or or was life okay and you were just experimenting, having fun, and then you fell into addiction? And so I think the, the best way so far for me is just really getting to know the person. And when I teach in the group, so I tend to do, you know, individual sessions and then they also do the group therapy where I'm talking 
uh, or battling against the, the the addiction, not against the person. And using, uh, I got so many teaching points out of my own life mm. that they, they 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 sort of process it, and then when they come into their individual sessions, they're usually much more open and able to talk. And then we find out. Sometimes it's challenging though. People come in. And one of the reasons I was going to go into psychiatry was when I was doing my internships as a late act, everybody that went to see the psychiatrist was bipolar. Oh, gosh, yeah. And we're all like, no, you're not bipolar. They're just high. They need to, they need to get clean and, and not use, and, and then we can see what's really going on. Mm. And they start putting them on all these meds. Which makes and, it worse. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's no different than, and so now we get clients to come in and they'll tell me their diagnosis before their name, and and I'm not okay when when that's the way the story starts. Mm, because they've been stuck in that box, and and that's so dangerous, and that to get that label just limits them so much, doesn't it? This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, my one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products. From home and personal care to premium pantry staples, all in one place. I've been using Public Goods for months now and absolutely love their healthy pantry staples like organic pastas, soups and more. With the upcoming holidays, I know I will be doing a lot of cooking, baking and cleaning, so I've been stocking up on everything I need from Public Goods. I don't have to wait in line at stores and I end up saving so much money. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly and innovative products like sulfate-free shampoo, hand sanitizer and tree-free paper products. They ethically source and obsessively develop each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives still common on drug and grocery store shelves. They are committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals and the environment. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on personal health and the world at large. We worked out an exclusive deal just for cleaning up the Mental Mess podcast listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com forward slash Dr. Leaf or use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf to receive $15 off your first order. Very quickly, you were talking about how they get put on all these psychotropics. I'm sure you're aware, but psychotropics are more addictive than both heroin and cocaine. And, you know, no one talks about that. You know, no one talks about the addiction, the the the, the problem with the addiction to the psychotropics because it's kind of used as medicine, but it's a very negative addictive factor too. I agree. And, and, uh, and again, I was really good, glad to see at your conference when we had the lawyers and the judge and Dr. Peter Brigham and all them saying that we everybody's just bought into that system. Mm. And, and it's hard because I do work with probation and I do work with with CYFD, Child Protective Services and, and, and big collaboratives. That their go-to is, are they on their meds? And when when you know sometimes those meds, and because and, we've got some clients that that just work the system, and so they've got a cannabis card, they've got a Suboxone prescription, they've mm. got a, a Benzo prescription, but they're not on their street drugs. Well, they're just as high. Exactly on legal drugs and and so the the challenge is to tell them that you're on a medically assisted treatment but you're not really on recovery exactly yeah medically assisted addiction is more like it versus (laughs) treatment yeah and a, a new adventure we've had is a local dispensary has actually asked us, because I also have a suicide prevention and awareness coalition, to do some QPR training for them, but also training on just treatment. Because, you know, as the country may be going to recreational, I don't think we're ready for that. And, mm. and, and as I taught my teen group last night, just because it's legal does not mean it's healthy. Alcohol is legal, but it still sends more people to treatment than any other drug. Exactly. Exactly. And this. Mm. So we're just trying to help them understand that because I've had a young lady say, when I smoke marijuana, it makes me happy. And so we had to separate that and say, no, 
That's not the definition of happy. That's numbing out your reality. Mm, so good. That's not happiness. That's numbing out your reality. And then it eventually backfires. Yes. And, and you're not dealing with things. And mm. so. So is that a key thing in your treatment? Because you said the first thing is to build that connection. The second thing is to hear the, to honor, hear the person's story and honor them. And then the third thing, if I'm hearing you say, is to is exactly this thing. It's not making you happy. It's numbing out the pain. So you've got to find the root of that pain. So is that like your third kind of focus in, in the treatment? Sure. Just trying to get them to realize that they've probably been misleading themselves in some things as well as people. Again, so many people are conditioned. Your work, Bruce Perry's work is, is also very helpful with what I do about how our lives have shaped how we think and feel and getting them to sometimes just have a big glossary lesson that because today's society, good means bad and bad means good mm-hmm. and how to just get things in the right perspective and then giving them support and 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 telling them this is not going to be easy you know that if you stop using drugs the first two months of your life is not going to be the best and and don't think that that's how recovery is going to stay we've had some parents say my care my children tell me i should probably drink a beer or smoke a joint or something because i'm not too nice now that i'm in recovery and Mm. so front loading them that hey these changes are going to happen you're going to be irritable you need to eat healthy and and again using some of your your tips about thinking your way smart you Mm. know how to just be healthy I think people just think, if I just stop using drugs, my life gets better. So I'm hearing you say that your fourth step is is almost like an education step to help them understand the process of withdrawal and the and the, the pain of withdrawal and the and then the re, sort of the education in terms of reintegrating back in. And then the fifth step, supporting them through this process. So kind of through the whole and the family reactions and the friend reactions and just to help them deal with that. Yes. And, and so if I was to just give you topics of our outpatient program we start out with substance education where we want to give them the true facts of what drugs and alcohol do to the body and how they make us think and feel then we look at triggers in themselves and i start expanding there not just what triggers drug use but what triggers our real problems our our depression our anxiety our flashbacks Mm -hmm. of traumatized so what is the triggers to the real problems and then we look at relapse prevention, that relapse doesn't have to happen. It just usually does. And 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 then that is where we start looking at reevaluating our morals and values and ethics. Because mm. until we tell ourselves this is not okay, we are still telling ourselves it is okay. I used to say I hated cocaine. The problem was I didn't hate it because I don't have a problem not doing things I hate. I can stop those things right away. The problem is I really liked it. And and I needed to make that shift in my head that I know I like it, but it's not okay for me to do anymore. And so really challenging your personal morals, values, and ethics. And then we go into the 12 steps. Like I said, I'm a fan of the 12 steps from 12-step programs. But then we spend a big chunk of time in what I call developing a lifestyle of recovery. And and so then we, we look at ourselves, we, we look at our self-concept. How do we see ourselves? How do other people see us? But more importantly, what do we want to work towards becoming? Who's valuable to us? Again, using my mom's saying of, I will always love you, but I don't like you very often. Mm. And now, now that my son is 21, I know mm. that definition very well. <laughs> That's amazing. That's it. This is incredible information and we're coming towards the end of the interview and I definitely would love to have you back on again because you, you've, your, your knowledge or experience is incredible and I think incredibly helpful. Very practical as well. I love how you've explained things. I want to ask you one more question and it, I think it's a very important question and it's a big question so we'll answer it as succinctly as possible. Bearing in mind, I'm definitely going to have you back on the podcast again to share more. But what can someone, what advice do you have for, for if, if you've got a family member or a friend who's battling with addiction, what advice can you give? How do you help them? Sure. So I know one thing I had to do was the addict has to be truly committed to recovery. 
it's just like New Year's resolutions. You know, I think a lot of times people have good intentions, but they don't fully look at the commitment needed to make this change. I want to just emphasize what you said. It's brilliant. The person needs to be truly committed to recovery, not just interested in recovery, not just thinking about recovery, actually committed to recovery. Yes. And and then finding someone that they can, to be honest, and it may be a few people because I I Mm. trust my mom and and love my mom and talk with my mom, but I don't want to talk about certain areas of my life with my mother. Mm. Just she still respects me as a man, you know. So Mm. for me, it was a a handful of people that that I could talk to. And and I knew they weren't going to just instantly agree with me. They're going to sharpen me. Mm -hmm. And so. But then also educating the families, because if the family members aren't addicts, they don't know the secrets and they just take things personal. Okay, that's very important. Educating the family because they don't understand or know the secrets. They don't understand that that mindset of a person who's going through the experience of addiction and they might take it personally. So if you educate and then that could make it worse in terms of support. So if you educate the family, then they don't take it personally. They could be a more effective support. Sure. My mom used to say, if you love your son, you should just stop cocaine. And I said, Mom, I do love my son. I put poison in me. I don't put poison in my son. And mm. so she she sort of said, OK. And I so I had to learn to love myself and, and not lie to myself. And that's why I needed these accountability partners. And so eventually what I did is I told all my little secrets to mom and some friends about signs and symptoms to watch for when I was going to start to become unstable. And so I had to break it all the way down. Here I was 32 years old and needed my mommy to go pick up my paycheck because I can't be trusted with it. And mm. and we, we had to have these discussions that even though she held my money, if I needed to go pay a bill, I was going to return a receipt with all the change. And to mm. check the check the ashtrays in the car to make sure there was, because I don't like to carry things in my pocket. And when I'm healthy and in recovery there's change in my ashtrays little things like that Mm, that's brilliant so so if there's no change especially if the pennies are missing we're really in trouble we've already fell off the wagon and and on a mission over here so i had to had to be open and honest with those things And, and like i said with several different people educating the family so that they understand and and then if you come from a family of addiction trying to welcome them in because a lot of my extended family were substance users. And what I told people is I'm no better than anyone. I'm no better than Mm. the guy still eating out of a trash can. I just want better outcomes today by better choices. Mm. And so I I pushed the, the, the cocaine pipe away from me. If people follow that, that's their choice. But I'm going to head in this direction. So you make your, your values and your choices very clear to everyone in terms of that yes. and people around you that may still be in addictions and you may come in contact. You make it very clear that, that if they want to do that, that's their life. But don't involve you. You don't want that anymore. Yes. And I know we're close on time. What I tell in my my family parenting for recovery, one of the few statements I say in the beginning is, one, it's not a parent's job to make a child happy, but it is their job to, to create the environment for the child to experience happiness in. That's so good. Just say that again. It, it's not the parent's job to make the child happy, but it is their job to create the environment for the child to experience happiness in. Very powerful. So this enabling deal that and, and so many parents said, what did I do so wrong? And I said, it's not that you did anything wrong. You did a lot of things you thought were good. You gave in. You didn't hold the line of restriction. And so even with my son, so structure is very important in recovery, consistency, helping them to mature and face the music of what they've done. But don't be so rigid in the structure that you ruin the relationship. Mm. We don't want to become legalistic with the rules. It drives me crazy when I see agencies that are dealing with addiction that if somebody tests positive, they're kicked out of the program. That's when they need the program. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Don't don't shame them anymore. But Mm. sometimes we kick them when we're down. Clients have said, your program's too easy. I said, why? Because people come in late or they're still using. I said, again, that's why we need to be here. Treatment should not be hard. Mm. Life is hard. Treatment should not be hard. Life is hard, but treatment should not be hard. The process and, is hard enough. The process of recovery is hard enough, so the treatment needs to be easy. 
Yes. And so what I do is I work really hard to, to keep myself healthy as a, as a person. I, I start clients at nine, but I wake up at five because I got to do prayer. I got to do stretching. I need to do exercise. Mm. I need to drink my coffee, which I, mm-hmm. I do drink that for Sigmatic coffee now after Great. I do it, told us about it. And, and so <laughs> I, I sort of fuel myself up for four hours because the rest of the day I have to take on trauma and drama and give out energy. And and, and one thing Mr. Phillips me early on, that for whatever reason, I, I, I learned it was you can't own the successes and failures of your clients. You just focus on your part, which is give them all you got at that time. And so that's what I try to do. Oh, wow. You uh, can't own the successes and failures of your clients. All you can do is is basically be there for them and guide them. Wow, yes. that's, that's amazing. And you're looking after your own mental health because you've got to be able to give out all day long, as you say, dealing with the, all the traumas and the dramas. You've got to make sure that your mental health is protected in order to be able to do that. So you start your day early. That's amazing. And get your mental health ready with exercise and prayer and, and stretching and all that kind of stuff and good healthy eating and good coffee. And that's really fantastic. I love it. We're going to have to end, Nathan. It's amazing. Have you, have you got a closing statement, a piece of just a closing statement that you'd like to say i'd like to say that you know when we're looking at addictions or mental health i would agree with a lot of what you were saying at the conference and all those that were there that everything is connected Mm. in everything that we do and don't do affects the people around us and Mm. and vice versa them to us so so it's not a simple fix and to really be committed to yourself and and your families to to battle addictions and get good therapists and and ask for help like i said we we do a lot of different work we do suicide prevention and awareness we do addictions we do food pantries we do teen parenting adult parenting because it's all those things together mm. that are going to make us healthy we're we're trying to with um, I'm the current president of the New Mexico Addictions Education Network. Mm. We do a co- annual conference in Silver City. It's our 54th one this year, and trying to just stay on top and 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 new things. Not forget the old, but integrate the new when it comes to research and therapy. But the bottom line, I think, is still the connection to honor the the story of people and keep yourself he- healthy, especially if you're a provider. You don't want to burn out, yeah. To burn out and all that, and, and then you end up start just being negative, part of that negative. That's fantastic. Now, we, how can people get hold, find out more about you? So, I live in Roswell, New Mexico. La Familia Mental Health is is one agency, and, and Embrace Inc. Embrace Inc. does have a Facebook page. I, I am a little slow on the social media and all of that, so I need to probably get that vamped up. But I've been so busy just trying to do the treatment part. They can also find my contact information on silvercityinstitute.org. And that's the New Mexico Education Network's conference webpage. So they can find that. And then Fantastic. and, we'll put, and then, all, we'll put all that in the show notes. Okay. And like I said, I don't mind if if our phone number's there. My office phone is 575-840-1075. And we'd love to connect with with you again, Dr. Leaf, and and the team. And uh, I'm already signed up for next year's conference in Dallas. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. Well, you've done, you're doing such, thank you for the fantastic work that you're doing, for the honesty, the authenticity, and turning your life around in such a dramatic way and providing an incredibly practical way of dealing with addiction. I really, really think what you're doing is absolutely outstanding and definitely have you back on the show again. So thank you so much for joining me today, Nathan. It's been incredibly interesting and very, very empowering. Well, thank you very much for having me, Dr. Leaf. I really was honored with this. Thank you so much. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. 
So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.